Welcome to Writers Forum, a weekly presentation of WRBHFM. I'm Sherry Alexander, and this week we're talking to Bobby Fiesler, author most recently of Tenderbox, the untold story of the upstairs lounge fire and the rise of gay liberation. Welcome to Writers Forum, Bobby. Happy to be here, Sherry. Uh, this is quite a book. You've caused quite a stir mm. uh, recently. Um, you started out, though, let's talk about you a little bit. You started out, you're from a small town yourself. I'm from a suburb of Chicago. I grew up. I called Naperville, Illinois, which was a conservative political incubator back in the 1990s. Um, and you were just a regular person. You studied English and history in yeah, school. My parents were middle class. I went to public school through undergrad. Um I never thought I would get into journalism. I thought I, I, I wrote short stories and poems for a while. Um, and then in a prior life, I was at a career in advertising where I would have to, as part of ad research, interview people. And that became my favorite part of the job more than any ad campaign or pitch. I just liked talking to people that worked at companies. And then to the point where I realized I need to stop helping powerful corporations be better understood. And I, I wanted to help the average person, the unfamous, the employees. I, I was interested in those stories and those daily, the, the lived experiences of daily lives. So that's what motivated me going to journalism school eventually. So you went to Columbia Journalism School. I did, yeah. I don't know why they accepted me. I thought it was a mistake <laughs> It's at a first. very good journalism I, school. I went there, I showed up on the first day, and I thought someone was going to tap me and on the shoulder and just be like, I'm so sorry, there's been a terrible error here. <laughs> Well, meanwhile, um, part of the background of this book, because the story, of course, of gay liberation, mm. um, you said that your own community at home was very conservative and you sure. didn't actually um, present yourself as a gay person. No, I was closeted. So um, there, I had no uh, role models. There were no role models around me, um, with the exception of a person I'll say was an uncle, but he was really the brother of my aunt by marriage. Um, but I called him uncle when we were growing up. He died of AIDS in 1995. I only found out that um, he was gay, though, on the way to his funeral. So that's, that was when I was 13 years old, just starting to understand who I was as a gay person um, and that I was different and that my sexuality was going to be what it was. And um, I learned it in the context of this man dying. I thought I was the only one in the world that a lot of LGBT youth believe, when they, especially when you grow up in a conservative environment, you believe you're the only one in the world. You believe you're a kind of aberration. Um, and then to be told that there had been another but that he's dead, um, what really, really affected me. And... Yeah, you, but you still, you didn't say anything until, what, you were out of college or in college? My junior year of college, actually, I came out. So I, I, I tried everything to, to pass as heterosexual. I tried, it was, a, I embraced the entire hall of mirrors of closeted life where you wake up every morning and you put on the mask of your heterosexual persona. And in, a, in essence, you walk around as a character of yourself. Um, where not even your closest friends or family know who you really are. And I came out uh, my junior year of college, really um, in a program where I, 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 it's called the New England Literature Program or NELP. It's one of the, really, I think, as in that public university, one of the only cool vestiges of, their, of Ann Arbor's wild. Michigan, yeah. yeah, Ann Arbor, Michigan's wild 1960s, 1970s political culture was this program where you go to a camp in rural Maine on a lake 
and you read New England authors, Dickinson, Thoreau, Hemingway, not Hemingway, sorry, Emerson, Hawthorne, and you have keep a journal and you're in an intentional learning community and you ponder greater life questions and there's a lot of self-reflection about what you really want, especially in, in the context of Dickinson and Thoreau. And I realized I couldn't lie anymore. And I came out there actually at first to that intention, very supportive, intentional community, and then immediately afterwards to other aspects of my life. But I was I was 21 when I came out. You know, usually uh, an author's sexual orientation is completely irrelevant and we don't sit around talking about it. The yeah. only reason we're talking about it is because so much of this book, um, you've done a tremendous amount of research and mm. you're trying to describe what the country and particularly, of course, New Orleans, was like in 1973 with right. this fire. Mm -hmm. um, and you do such a good job of showing, I mean, things have really changed. Oh, sure, absolutely. In 1973, uh, surprisingly enough, even in New Orleans, people were not openly gay. Mm, yeah, it was that gays or homosexuals, as they were called, the word gay was then too radical to be used by the average person. And even some homosexuals rejected the word gay because they thought it was uh, they thought it was pirating a, a common a common term for the word bliss. But uh, in, in New Orleans at that time, um, there'd been a grand tradition of uh, kind of shunting the vices over into a corner where it's not spoken about. And so long as it's not spoken about, the behavior is permitted to exist. If it's named, it provokes violent reprisals from authorities. So that most of the vices, uh, prostitution, gambling, drugs, and of course uh, homosexuality, have been uh, have been relegated to that kind of almost an underbelly. And uh, if you were gay in New Orleans in 1973, you embraced that semi-closeted niche because, in, in an essence. Um, it was an institution that allowed you to, in some senses, live a very full life. You could have a job and be successful in a career. You could own a home or rent an apartment that you really loved. Um, you could have a wide group of friends who you were secretly you know, out to. Uh, you wouldn't be out to your family, odds are. But you could have a life where you found joy and success and comradeship. Um, but... Uh, if you came out of the closet and you spoke the truth about your private behavior, if you spoke the dreaded letter, the dreaded word that begins with H, that's not heterosexual, um, that would be the end of all of that. Uh, it's just amazing to me. I came here in uh, 91, and one of the um, people I've had the opportunity to interview is uh, Brian Batt, mm. and he was at the height of his... Uh, popularity with Mad Men and so mm. on. And he wrote a book, a lovely book about his mother, who actually uh, was a volunteer at this station wow. while we were recording. But I was amazed, even in the eight, well into the 80s, into the 90s, he did not come out as gay till he had left New Orleans. Mm. He had moved to New York um, because he felt like he just, it would have, as you're saying, his life would have not been as free as it mm. was. Uh, when he was closeted. And... Yeah, there's a New Orleans, I mean, it, it, that, this kind of euphemistic or closeted behavior um, had functioned well in New Orleans, right, for decades, if not centuries. The idea that gentlemen, you know, the phenomenon of sexual difference, gentlemen who prefer gentlemen, ladies who prefer ladies, gentlemen who prefer ladies and gentlemen, lady, all, the, all that, um, so long as it uh, existed in a way where it was not overtly declared, um, could in essence thrive 
in this city. Um, I, I, I'm sure you encountered this at different points, but many individuals, uh, so as so as to be understood uh, who they were without overtly declaring it, would live euphemistically. So they would, you'd be, you know, an eligible bachelor or in a stratified class society like New Orleans. It was even better if you were a millionaire bachelor or two females living together would be spinster roommates when it was clear to everyone, including their friends, that they were lovers. Or um, there would be two longtime companions. Or I don't know if you've heard the term uptown marriage. Yes, we have that still today yeah. in New Orleans. I've noticed that and it surprised me. I didn't realize two men romantically and sexually involved with each other have wives who are oftentimes best friends and then they have two sets of children who are oftentimes best friends too and they go on vacations and spend weekends together. Uh, Rick Barton about 15 years ago wrote a, a book, a Roman, a Clay. It was a novel and describing people that lived we use St. Charles Avenue, you know, where mm. the uh, uptowners, the bankers, and people like that, and yeah. they had uptown, uh, you know, these two marriages, two life, two lives. Well, and what gave you the idea, though, to to write this book? Well, I hadn't heard about the event before. Um, it actually came to me through a professor at the Columbia Journalism School named Nicholas Lemon, who grew up in New Orleans. Yeah, we all love Nicholas yeah, Lemon. <laughs> he's fantastic, and who uh, was a reporter in 1973 for an, a French Quarter alt weekly paper called the Vieux Carré Courier. Um, uh, incidentally, uh, Nicholas, one of Nicholas Lemon's first mentors, that he, who, a man who he values greatly, was a, a gay man who was his managing editor at, at the Vieux Curie Career, a guy named Bill Rushton. And Bill Rushton had reported, uh, done some of the most sem seminal enterprising reporting in 1973 about the upstairs lounge fire. So it came up in conversation where Professor Lemon said, have you ever heard of this event? It was a fire at a second story gay bar, 32 people died. And I was like, I, no, I was so shocked. I was so shocked that I'd never heard that, that high a death count is unheard. And then my next question was, well, then what happened? What caused it? And it was a, he couldn't really tell me much more besides the fact that he had been in New Orleans that summer and he'd done some reporting that he knew existed perhaps around that time. So I had to almost I had to go to New Orleans to sort of figure this out. I became almost immediately obsessed with this idea. And it was really interesting. When I got here, one of the first archives I went to was UNO, where the Via Curie Courier, um, essentially all of the assorted uh, niche materials for that entire publication, um, the entire time it ran, was there. And I, I found the articles that Nicholas Lemon had reported in the summer of 1973, and they occurred side by side, Bill Rushton's stories about the upstairs lounge fire. So I called Professor Lemon. We had a short interview, and I said, you, you know, you, you were in the summer at this period of time. Can you tell me anything about this event? And he says, no, I'm sorry. It's too hazy. I can't really explain it. He couldn't explain it to me. And I was fascinated by that. He, it was like he wanted to express more to me. He could tell me a lot about Bill Rushton, a lot about the vehicle career, career, a lot about civil rights, but he couldn't explain to me why he couldn't say more about the upstairs lounge fire. And I came to believe that a sort of collective amnesia had occurred in the city at a span of time, or this event was so traumatic and that it had thrust the underbelly culture of closeted gay life right into the forefront of the city, put it right in people's faces in a way they couldn't handle. And it felt almost like a veil had been draped right over the collective memories of many of the individuals who'd lived here and really 
what's fascinating about that is it's only a veil that very recently in the 21st century has actually ended up being lifted. Yeah, I was going to say, you say the untold story. It is untold, uh, putting it into the perspective of the rise of gay liberation, but Mm -hmm. recently... Um, there's been several um, films made. Oh, absolutely. You know, several, several more books. books. There's you, been you two musicals. That. Two musicals. There's a, um, there was an exhibit a, a year or two Skyler ago. Skylar Fine, and yeah. that exhibit's actually, can, can, can I say this here? That exhibit is actually going to be at NOMA this summer, so they're reviving oh, that exhibition. Um, and Skylar's really thrilled about it. I, and I, I've actually never seen that exhibition oh, before. It's very interesting. Yeah. But, but as you say, it's only in the past several years. Um, I, I met Roy Anderson at a signing of one of my books. And mm. he told me he was making this film. And I said, really? Yeah. I, I had never seen it on film or anything like Roy's that. Roy's been a great mentor to me. And actually, he provided some material research that went into the book and is one of the biggest findings in the book, which was the presence at... Uh, St. Mark's Methodist Church, a week after the upstairs lounge fire, gay liberation and gay activist leaders who've been looking for a church to hold a public memorial for the upstairs lounge victims, for the for the upstairs lounge dead, succeeded in finding a French Quarter church that would agree to host them. It was called St. Mark's Methodist Church, and 200 people showed up. Um, it was the largest public gathering of openly gay and lesbian individuals right in in New Orleans history. This is a city that had not yet experienced even a pride parade. Um, So it was it was a large gathering, but um, and it was a very meaningful moving service. And yet uh, at the end of that service, uh, people began to panic because they realized, although there were no cameras inside the church that could out them, there was there were cameras and newspaper individuals stationed outside almost menacingly. Uh, threatening to expose the the mourners, the funeral attendees in their lifestyles, and and uh, for year and and bravely, the mourners and attendees of the of the Saint Mark's uh, service marched out to meet them. And for years, there had been this question about whether or not the cameras were present. To the point where people asked so many questions, I think many of the people who had actually walked out and seen the cameras were gaslighted into believing that they actually did, weren't there. And Royd did the digging, and he found the camera logs for WDSU that notes where the camera was in front of St. Mark's Church. And to his credit and in his generosity, he shared that research with me, and I was able to include it in the book. Well, um, for the benefit of people that haven't spent the past few years in New Orleans with all this, um, or or the past month since you've been in town, since your book came out, Mm -hmm. and you've really, you're everywhere, um, the Upstairs Lounge Fire, this was a, a club that was mm-hmm. um, predominantly attended by gay people. It's mm-hmm. on the outskirts between the French Quarter and the CBD. Yeah, the Simi Fringe on Iberville Street, still not a very nice area of that street presently. Well, and this wasn't really um, upper class people. This wasn't the St. Charles Avenue crowd. Um, it was a lot of blue collar workers and just normal everyday people. Correct. But they were comfortable here. Sure. And, and there were three rooms in this bar. It, yeah, was, it was upstairs a... lounge because you had to go up a skinny staircase. Yeah, to... which, which allowed for privacy. And the front skinny staircase that's twisting essentially served as the only entrance and exit for the public. And then a chimney for the fire. But Ugh. anyway, there's three rooms. They had a bar room. Mm-hmm. Where a white baby grand piano was, and men would stand around there and sing show tunes. And United We Stand, that oh, was their yeah. anthem. Absolutely. 
Uh, especially on Sunday nights, they'd have this beer bust. Mm-hmm. That was the biggest drink special of the week. Uh, week one dollar uh, for unlimited draft beer plus a returnable fifty cent deposit for the pitcher. I mean, it, this is two hours of some pretty serious convivial drinking. This was New Orleans in the seventies. Well, and you just did a wonderful story of. Um, giving background, which you can do in a, what, 300-page book, which we can't do in a five-minute so that we have right. left to talk. Um, but you you give us portraits, really, of the mm. people that were there. Yeah. Um, just to mention a few of them, the bartender, Buddy Rasmussen, I guess his real name was yeah, Douglas. Rasmussen. Yeah, Yeah. Um, he was the bartender. Yeah, and, he was like the fulcrum and the soul, the heart and soul of that place. And they had rules, you know. They didn't want it to be some kind of bloodbath place. You couldn't mm. fight. You couldn't couldn't you know. do drugs. No hustling. No, meaning no prostitution there. And and that was the clientele. And then the the middle room was um, the dance area where they would sometimes host charity drag shows. Sounds wonderful. I, I mean, know. Fun to, to from hindsight. Yeah. And then they had an inner room and um, the beginnings, I guess, the nascent uh, metropolitan community church, church. Community church actually yeah. held some services yeah. there for a gay a while. affirming Christian ministry. Very radical for the time period. And the rector was Bill Larson. He was. He was a pastor um, that had been serving for about a year and prior then you, to the fire. Uh, one thing that struck me, I have a bunch of kids, is... Um, a guy who had been married and now was divorced, but he was still, you know, sharing custody of his kids. Um, so he and his partner, when they went to this bar, they would drop the kids off at the movies. Sometimes, yeah, they would. And, they, you know, for a couple of hours. Yeah, these were weekend matinees, yeah. Disney movies. The kids loved it. Mm-hmm. So, so those were some of the people yeah. that, that you describe. So there's this guy named Rogers Nunez mm-hmm. who appears in into the picture this day, mm-hmm. but he gets kicked out of the bar. He does. He's violently ejected after provoking a fight where he gets clocked. I mean, punched in the punched in the face right on the jaw and he falls over and actually his jaw's broken. And you find two different people that hear him say, yeah. what? I'm going to burn you all out. Or the other person hears him say, I'm going to burn this place to the ground. Key emphasis is they both heard the word burn. And so you track his movements. He goes to Walgreens down the street. Yeah, an individual matching his description goes to Walgreens down the street and buys a certain size and brand of lighter fluid. We can't libel a dead person, so we could say people think it's him. It's still an unsolved crime. It's a tragically unsolved crime. But there's every reason to believe that that it was him. The likelihood is that... The, the likelihood is that he went to the Walgreens, bought the certain size and brand of lighter fluid, and then minutes later, the highest likelihood is he stood in the stairwell of the upstairs lounge and emptied that same size and brand of lighter fluid and produced a spark. And then runs away. Mm-hmm. And it, it, within minutes, the fire creeps up that... I mean, this is, a, as you say, a tinderbox. Mm-hmm. I mean, is is designed for fire. It's mm-hmm. like ready-made for this old right. wood. And and the building had not received fire safety inspections for several years. I mean, the, the place was just, if it, it was just ready for an inferno like this. And you, you just described the, I'm getting the chills even, read, it was very difficult to read a few of your pages. I know. Where you describe. It was awful to write. The fire. It was awful to write. You said you had to go to grief counseling. After I did. You. It was so sad to me. I mean, it, these these were I, 
I'd come to be, these were wonderful people that I was be, I was able to explore their lives and I did my best to try to portray their sometimes very rich and very long lives and their fullness prior to what happened on this terrible day. And then to place them all in the key setting and to have to, I wasn't writing fiction, to have to um, rehash what occurred to them in that those rooms, it was terrible. The worst, I think, uh, was the Bill Larson who tried to get out the window mm. and he was left there for hours and people could see him on that picture just has haunted me. It's yeah. really disturbing. They, yeah, they did not place a sheet over him. They just left him there as a public spectacle. Well, you you do the follow up and uh, you you say, you know, the police and the fire people, they they did a job. They didn't do a terrible job, they didn't do a wonderful job, but whatever, the job ended. And the rest of the city didn't really pay any attention. You go into some detail about um, Moon Landrew was mayor at the time and mm-hmm. he was going out of town. And, you know, did he or did he not have time to comment? Sure. And, um, Governor Edwards, who I've done quite a bit of coverage of Governor Edwards. Oh, sure. Um, he didn't take any sympathetic stand. I mean, it was kind of even um, Archbishop Hannon, who you know, commented on some other... We had some terrible things happen Mm -hmm. around that time. We had this New Orleans sniper I wrote a book about. Mm -hmm. It included that story. But anyway, even though he commented on the loss of lives there, he he just, you said, had like a little indirect reference a a month later in the Mm -hmm. Clarion Herald, the Catholic newspaper. Yeah. So, So the public officials were not... This no, was not I mean, it was a, a political hot potato, really. They didn't know what to do with it. I mean, at, this was at a time when homosexuals were considered, at least uh, open open homosexuals were considered a very dangerous subgroup. And so these public officials uh, really had to walk a careful line with, uh, with not wanting to seem like they're inciting dangerous behavior. But, but, and also you bring up a point that a lot of people that weren't in New Orleans at the time might not realize. I only found out because my area was trials and everything. Mm. Clay Shaw had just been tried um, supposedly for some kind of conspiracy oh, to yeah, assassinate that. JFK. Oh, my gosh. And, I mean, they just destroyed the, the life of this very respectable businessman mm-hmm. because he was gay and in the course of the investigation, Jim Garrison made a big deal of the fact, well, you know, he went into his closet looking for stuff and he found typical around here, mm-hmm. um, the kind of stuff you have for Mardi Gras. Sure. And, but, but the fact that he was gay and that his life at the time it yeah. was just ruined and it had just happened. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it's hard to convey it, what, 50 years later, yeah. you know, 40 years later, but... Um, but it, it it almost served as a warning because if they you know if if someone could take down someone as respected as Clay Shaw, the thought was who's next? Yeah, it was it was it was an amazing story that you told. Um, because of the hoopla about your book, and you, I, I guess it brought out even though this isn't the fiftieth anniversary, when you might expect you know on the certain anniversaries. Um, I guess it's the 45th anniversary. Yep, 45th last weekend. But because of your book, it just brought out a lot of attention. It brought oh, wow. attention to these other things. Um, ABC did a really uh, interesting little yeah, mini they documentary last week. They did a, they did a wonderful week. job. I and knew I knew the producers there well. They did an excellent job, and it 
illustrated a lot of things that, you know, I had just read your book when mm-hmm. I saw it. And one of the things was one of our most respected journalists here, in fact, um, I'm in the press club and we're giving him the Lifetime Achievement Award next month, Clancy mm-hmm. Dubo. He, his first story, um, he was a, an intern mm-hmm. at the Times-Picayune and he covered uh, that fire. And he he's, did. he's written, th- in the past week or two, he's written a, a thing in Gambit and mm-hmm. he went to Charity Hospital and, you know, it was very, very... Um, Interesting yeah. to to read somebody like that that knows New Orleans so well and mm-hmm. and he and your book, you know, just jibe. No, I mean so he did completely. such moving coverage. Um and it, it was his first front page story that he said he ever wrote was called Blood Moans Charity Scene, which was the scene at Charity Hospital when the upstairs lounge victims were coming in on, on ambulances. Yeah, he quotes some of it. You quote a little bit, but he quoted a little more of it. I I'm sure you saw oh, sure, Gambit yes. this week. Um well, we have like a minute or two left. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I prattled on. For this whole second half of your book. Well, no, I'm very interested in New Orleans since you're in New Orleans. Yeah. I want to take advantage of it. Yeah. Um, but the second part of your book is is the part that no one else really had done is put it into perspective what was going on nationally mm-hmm. and the place um, of, of the results of this fire. Like you talk about at the time, uh, Anita Bryant mm. had been uh, fighting. I was in Miami. And in fact, they just ran a uh, a little documentary called The Day It Snowed in Miami. It was mm-hmm. 1977. Mm. They were trying to pass the gay rights thing. Mm. And um, No, but I think it's important. I wanted to try to place the upstairs lounge, <laughs> the legacy of the fire in the narrative of the gay rights movement, the LGBT rights movement, and then show that how that was part of the broader civil rights struggle in, in well, American history. Well, even the fact history. that it's now LGBTQ, oh, yeah. you know, is such a change. And in this documentary about Miami, they finally passed the ordinance in 2014. Wow. Uh, what about us? What are some changes that you noted um, going on around here now? Oh, sure. I mean, in ter- well... I think you, Southern decadence is a really is a really vivid way to explain how gay culture has changed in New Orleans, where um, even though a lot of the LGBT community continues to only love the parties and not really embrace the politics, I think a festival that draws several hundred thousand really uh, revelrous homosexuals every year to the city um, has, you know, turns heads and has really changed minds. Well, in New, New Orleans... Um tourists are really all we got. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the oil's gone away. Oh, yeah. Um, in other words, it's suddenly politically very acceptable yeah. to um, point out the place of gays in our society sure. here in New Orleans. And I will say, to credit Mayor LaToya Cantrell, she walked down the aisle of St. Mark's Methodist Church for the 45th anniversary memorial uh, just last weekend and recognized the upstairs lounge fire as part of city history. That was the first for any mayor to do that in person. Well, part of it, you can feel that you certainly contributed a great deal Oh my gosh! to um, the public perception, mm. um, which is what politicians care about. Wow. And your book is well received. A Kirkus Review says, powerfully written and consistently engaging the book will hopefully shed more light on the gay community's incredible and tragic journey to equality, a momentous work of sociological and civil rights history. You've been listening to Writers Forum. We want to thank our guest this week, Bobby Fiesler, 
author of Tinderbox, The Untold Story of the Upstairs Lounge Fire and the Rise of Gay Liberation. I'm Sherry Alexander for WRBH. Thank you.